Hi, I'm Ken. And I'm Dee. And this is Antiques Freaks. Antiques podcast? No way. Yes way. <laughs> what antiques are we talking about this week? One that no one asked for, so cool. <laughs> <laughs> the antiques you didn't know you need. Yeah, nobody cares except me. I gotta be in my bonnet about this topic, so I did some research and then I was like, oh wait, when I do this, I can also do it for the show that we do. Convenient that. So today, we're gonna be talking about gelatin, jelly, or jello molds. Oh no. Yes. Oh no. (laughs) Do tell about the gel. (laughs) Oh you. Oh you. Oh me. So the first order of business is to clarify that when I talk about a gelatin, jelly, or gel, or jello mold, I am not including a variety of molds that you might mistake for a gelatin mold. More on that later. If you were a simple rube, you might mistake these for true gelatin molds. It's true! (laughs) For a variety of reasons, molded food in general was pretty big for a long time. Leading to some truly fascinating cookbooks. Oh, God, yeah. I did a little research into that, too, and what I found answered no questions, so that was, like, fun. (laughs) You know how sometimes when you're researching something, it answers the question technically, but there's still, like, a kernel of what you sought to find left unanswered? Oh, yeah. That's a classic X-Files episode right there. Yeah. So I watched an X-Files episode on uh, gelatin. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I'm saying that we're not going to be looking at things like pudding tins, which I just bought one because of this research, Ice compotes, nougat compotes, nougat cornucopias, chocolate peacocks, gets its own specific name for some reason, raised pie tins, sugar baskets, or cake and ice cream booms. And if you thought we were going to cover all of those, shame on you, how dare you. I probably never will. <laughs> I was kidding. I'm just kidding. If you want me to, just hit me Hit me up, I, I'll start. No, a gelatin mold, or jelly mold, or jello mold, or gel mold, is any mold, commonly of metal, meant for the molding of congealed foods. Yay! Obviously you're thinking jello, a gelatin, a jelly. This could also include aspic, panna cotta, and certain kinds of puddings that aren't the kind of puddings that go in a different mold as well as flummery, blancmange, and an assortment of other different weird French names we gave goo food that it hardened. Many different kinds of pudding. <laughs> so the earliest food molds, which you actually see go to around the 12 to 1300s, largely friars seem to really like salmon mousse. Can you blame them? Not even a little. That shit is delicious. Those earlier, earliest food molds They tend to be wood, and they tend to be for meat and fish mousses, and that can be any meat, or like certain kinds of smaller puddings. Wait, wait, sorry, the fish can be anything? No, the meat can be anything. The fish has to be a fish, generally. Okay, because like if the fish didn't have to be a fish, I was going to have problems. Hey, Hey, I got bad news for when we crawl into the 1950s about how certain a fish has to be a fish. Oh no. Because nothing has to be anything in the 1950s. Oh god, no. These tended to be in natural shapes, sometimes like the cut of meat that it was supposed to be. It's called like a chop mold, and that was for when you used a gelatin slurry to glue together meat scraps. A gelatin slurry to glue together meat scraps. You hungry yet? No wasting. No wasting. (laughs) I do appreciate the waste-free food process, but when you break it down like that, I'm less hungry. 
we're not going to invent waste until the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> Fair point. So these shapes tended to be either what they were made out of, a fish, <laughs> or other natural shapes like eggs or scallop shells, something simple that you could carve into half of a piece of wood, generally. Sure. Until we get to the 1700s, where we start to see the upper class use jams and jellies as a flex. They're doing that again, are they? That is actually the tale of Jello, unfortunately. At this point, we introduced gel molds that would be made out of ceramic, porcelain, ironstone, ironstone very commonly, yada yada. They still tended to be kind of low, not so high up. The jello molds you're probably thinking of, or maybe you're not, which is most exciting because I cannot wait for you to Google everything, is when the Victorians got a hold of it. Of course they did. I don't ever do this on purpose. They just get their little sickening whimsy fingers into every goddamn pie. <laughs> Every single jelly mold. <laughs> the Victorians adopting molded food was when it really exploded. The Victorians liked nothing better than an upper class flex, as can you well know. Oh, yes. Most of the time, molding food involved a lot of ice and time. Guess what only the upper class has? Yeah. Ice is very expensive, and the time and intricacy of developing these gelled foods took so much time and effort that it was pretty much only done if you had enough staff to spare two or three of them to just make you jelly. Flex. So, like, it's not even all upper class. It had to be upper class with, like, full staff. You gotta have the dosh. You couldn't necessarily get your girl of all work to do a jelly mold or she wouldn't be doing any of her other work. And she'd also fail at it because, frankly, she doesn't have enough hands. And also that... And so, since this is already a display of wealth and class and art, as the Victorians called everything they did, the molded food game became insane. Which is also when they started introducing the copper mold, which is probably the dominant mold in your mind when you think about any kind of molded food, because copper was expensive, always has been, always will be. Easy to mold, so you could get more fantastical shapes. Lightweight, so you could make them bigger. And it was copper, and then you would have copper in your living room. Because a lot of times these would be served at the table in the mold and would be demolded at the table. So all of your guests would see how much copper you had, and then also that you had like nine ladies to make a blancmange. So, things got pretty competitive in the how cool can a mold get game where they start looking like castles. A lot of the time, they look a lot like castles. You get the Macedoin mold. Macedoine, I guess if you're American. That is a mold that is gently domed, so that you can put a clear jelly inside of it, and underneath, a pile of fruit or cheesed cream would be visible through the dome. Ooh. From there, things would only get more fucked up. What about Wedgwood's extremely iconic and well-selling obelisks? The Tormentor? Two-part obelisk molds. Oh. What? I said the Tormentor. It was very funny. Oh, hold on. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. That was very funny. This is my favorite fucking thing. Wedgwood sold these ceramic obelisks that you would slot into a metal outer tin or sometimes just like more Wedgwood pottery outer tin so that the obelisk would be coated in clear jelly and like magnify the colors of whatever was printed on the obelisk, usually florals. 
Okay, that fucking rules, though. And then you just cut it off. Like... (laughs) Hey, I love my new gelatin obelisk, and I'm going to be buried with it. Good night. I was really hoping that you would become as fond of the Wedgwood Jello obelisk as I am. (laughs) Hell yeah. At the time, also, poorer people, or, you know, lower middle class, they would use tin molds. This was done pretty easily because, as you might know, tin is cheap, easy to manufacture, easy to shape, and cheap. <laughs> You're already using tin to line the copper because this is one thing copper's pretty famous for is that it will kill you. <laughs> this bodes ill for my copper kitchen. Well, not entirely because the copper molds would be lined with a layer of tin. I love this because it is basically just doubling down on the fact that we had the copper molds strictly to flex. At risk of poisoning ourselves. And, contrary to popular belief, people knew about verdigree poisoning by now. For more on that, check out our Paris Green episode. (laughs) Yes. Other molds would actually have these, like, dips so you could end up putting glacade fruit, like, in little windows that they had. Or, like, molded medallions specifically for a slice of cucumber. Now, I mentioned that a jelly mold is distinct from other kinds of food molds. And up until the 1950s, a jelly mold is always dictated by size. A copper mold or tin mold for jelly is not ever really over six inches tall. Anything over five and a half to six inches would be for a cake or a boiled pudding or something that had more in- like internal structure. When I was talking about jelly taking a lot of time to be made into a food, that's because making the gelatin took about three days of boiling every part of the cow you didn't want to eat. And as a result, what you get isn't quite as stable as the gelatin you can buy in packets now. So if you made it past a certain height, it'd just fall over. There are some notable exceptions, not many, but a couple would actually be made so that they would have a stabilizing agent in the core, which was usually fruit, but sometimes profiteroles, which is nasty. What are they doing? They're stuffing profiteroles in gel. Why are they like this? For the flex, my good man, for the flex. Putting a nail through your own tongue isn't a flex. (laughs) Yeah, up until um, plastic molds, they don't ever really get above six inches, so that's a really easy way to determine if the mold you're holding Uh... is a jelly mold. Copper and tin would be common as jelly molds spread to the U.S. until manufacture scaled all the way down in the 1930s for guess what reasons and was more or less completely lost to plastic by the 1950s. At which point, jello would take on a weirder cultural significance, but for the exact same reasons. One of the things I found like really fucking fascinating about the enduring popularity of a molded gelatin food was that the reason it took off in part in the 1950s was because it was an instant food, right? Like, at this point, all you had to do to make it was pour water in it. It went off the rails and turned into hot dog salad and lime with mayonnaise on it because despite the fact that convenience foods were at their absolute height and there was a lot of concentrated advertising effort to make people use up post-war foodstuffs that had been invented pretty much for survival... It was still seen as bad to just use convenience food. You were a bad mom if you fed your kids just canned soup. And if you just dump jello into a bowl, you're a bad mother and a bad wife. 
You have to put love and care into your meals, even if it's coming out of a box and you're dumping water on it. Which is exactly how we got all those horrifying things I'm certain you've heard of. I love how love and care in your food becomes hot dogs in your jello. Shrimp in your lime jello. No, don't do this. Why are you doing this? Stop it. And as all things, this effort to turn a convenience food into an expression of duty ended up becoming an endless social contest with a constant need to outdo the next person at the church potluck or whatever. This can also be traced to the rise in home refrigeration, where instead of just having chunks of ice in a box full of hay in the backyard, you have an electric refrigerator in your kitchen, which makes foods that need to cook through cooling, such as jello, much easier to make in the home. True. And, of course, after the heyday of the 1950s waned away, women started moving into the workforce en masse, and in general, people accepted convenience foods for conveniences that they are, Everyone slowly abandoned the grand tradition of a molded gelatin meal. I can't say I'm sincerely weeping for it. Except good news. Thanks to, <laughs> thanks to everyone being locked in their homes for a year, it is on the rise, <laughs> the use of gelatin molds for food. I feel like Instagram is also partly to blame for this because it's certainly going to make people look at your post. 100% actually part of how I got interested in this is I found a bunch of groups of people who did vintage style gelatin desserts in their vintage tins. And this is all happening very aesthetically on Instagram. So I think that definitely has a lot to do with it in addition to the tired old sawhorse of it's funny and ironic to do an old thing. There's no such thing as irony. Everything you start doing ironically, you will begin doing sincerely in short order. There's merit to that. Enjoy your genuine love of gelatin hot dogs. And in addition, in addition to that, it has a lot to do with nostalgia. Even if you were too young to really remember the heyday of an aspic, a lot of people, and I mean a lot of people, I was really surprised at how many people I saw talking about this because it was not my experience, had these molds as decoration in their homes. Apparently it was an extremely common decor in the 70s and 80s. Huh. Which leads me to my question. Can Did anyone in your family decorate with jello molds? No. Our houses were too full of handmade pottery and Pennsylvania Dutch trinkets. Okay, alright, so you're, you're with me in that that was not my experience. No. Okay. It was a lot of people's experience. So I think a lot of people kind of took a visual interest in these, especially the copper molds, and just looked into them, looked into their role uses and got caught up in a mixture of irony and aesthetics and decided to try them out. So, now that you've thought about jellied foods for entirely too long, I bet you want to go get some jelly molds, huh? No, but I respect those who do. I was going to say, watch your tongue, because I have one in the back of my car right now. God, why? It's actually a pudding mold. <laughs> oh, well then. You can tell a pudding mold because a pudding mold always has a locking lid similar to the lid on a ball jar. Oh... Can't let the pudding escape now, can we? Absolutely not. Do you know what it's going to do if it gets out? I wish I didn't. The royal family already knows. Jesus Christ, Steve. <laughs> so the first thing you need to be aware of when you're looking for vintage jelly molds is, well, let's start at the obvious. Is it a jelly mold? This isn't super important because if it's old, it's old. And if it's a food mold, you're probably pretty open to other kinds. But like I said, like we've all said, Literally all of us, can you? <laughs> you've said this as well, despite listening to me. <laughs> as the old adage goes, 
A jelly mold is never higher than five and a half inches. <laughs> so yeah, it's material's kind of a matter of preference. If you're going in for money, it's going to be copper all the way down. This is in part due to just the metal cost of copper, but mostly because the appearance is versatile and very easy to sell to interior designers. That is a huge chunk of the industry, isn't it? Really, really is, yeah. Or maybe maybe this is like a skewed perspective from me who deals in books. <laughs> and for me, my life has narrowed down to working with interior designers. I mean, you know, they buy furniture too. That's true. Yeah, I just, I think a lot of people work with interior designers. And they're all our best friends. I'm really coming around on that relationship. <laughs> uh, but yeah, copper fixtures is kind of evergreen in design. Especially with the fact that cottage chic comes back around roughly every three years. Who the hell is redesigning their house every three years? Rich people. Can they stop? I mean, from where we're coming from, who hires someone else to decorate their house? Fair point. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? When you put it like that, somehow I see the answer before me. I knew you would see. (laughs) Uh, In addition to that, the copper molds tend to be the, the most decorative, like... The larger and the most elaborate, the strangest. So that plays into their desirability and value a lot. The absolute most popular molds are either fanciful structures, especially structures that have multi-part molds, such as the Brunswick Star Mold, the Alexandra Cross, or my personal favorite, the Belgrave Jelly. Huh. The Belgrave Jelly is a two-piece mold where one piece looks like pillars made of rope, that is meant to be made out of a solid color molded food such as a flummery, which is basically just a jellied custard, with an exterior of either obelisks or pyramids or castle walls of clear jelly so that you can see the rope structure within. I love the Belgrave jelly. I adore the Belgrave jelly. I would eat a Belgrave jelly all day just to have had the pleasure of being around one. Wow, that's... That's certainly something. (laughs) That certainly is a vision you've described. Never let it be said that I don't feel passion, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Other really popular shapes tend to be depictions of animals in addition to fanciful structures. As with the structures, the rule is the weirder the better. So a fish, not super interesting. A lion, now I don't know why you did that, now I'm interested. (laughs) Hovering kind of in the middle are, you know, swans, peacocks, that kind of thing. Like a lot of messed up Victorian things, the shapes come in more or less anything you can imagine. Just when you think you've seen it all, someone finds something weirder to show you. To the point where I was finding both zodiac and astronomy-themed jellytons. Astrological jellytons? Yes. Which makes sense, because that is sort of a marriage of the Victorian obsession with pretending you care about science and the Victorian obsession with actually being obsessed with whether or not you could really do magic. It doesn't, though, because Libra is literally just a set of scales. And why would you make that a jelly? You know, why would you make a jelly look like curled ropes within a castle? Or a pyramid draped in chain link? That's at least a recognizable structure. Like, I, the whole zodiac? Like, the whole thing? Not the whole thing. Mostly the ones that look good in jelly. I was going to say, like, the animal ones, sure, but some of them get a little (laughs) abstract. Yeah, you do have a good point there. It's hard to make the Gemini twins gelatin mold distinct from the two guys who look the same because they're from the same mold gelatin mold. (laughs) You know? Thank you. 
another kind of at a glance thing you can look at is that the earlier the mold, the shorter it will be. We're talking ranging from the 1700s to the Victorian era, where the 1700s are rarely over like three inches high. They're more like shaped plates for like a flat molded treat. Whereas as we've covered, the Victorians looked like literally anything, including nude women. Had to throw that in there too. It's not a party until you have a nude woman made out of gelatin. And then eat her parts. As Queen Victoria oft said, despite several people asking her to stop. (laughs) Saying, please, God, stop, please. My leash, this can't go on. (laughs) Another really valuable subset, um, and this actually ranges from the Victorian to the 1950s, is the advertising mold. The Victorian era ones I saw were actually fairly plain, except that the stoneware or copper itself was printed with a recipe and the name of the shop that was selling it. Oh, that's clever. Which I thought was fun. And this finds its natural conclusion in actual Jell-O branded Jell-O molds. Of course. I'm honestly surprised it didn't start there. No, of course not. You know that I'm going to be way more fascinated by the fucking Victorians than the, that. No, 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 no. I mean, I don't understand why branded molds didn't start out as gelatin branded. Yes, that's a good question. <laughs> because that feels like the obvious sell to me. <laughs> I mean, Jello did get in on it fairly early. Yeah, but they didn't start it, which does baffle my apple a little bit. Yeah. Jell-O, um, as a company, actually originates in the 1900s? Like, Yeah, that tracks. They've got that 20th century stank about them. <laughs> I know I've kind of, like, imposed a semantic cutoff here at the 1950s, and, like, admittedly that is a personal editorializing of this. Because I feel like it does deserve to be mentioned that Tupperware gelatin molds from, like, the 60s and 70s are still pretty valuable. There are groups of people who catalog and collect vintage Tupperware. Sometimes specifically the brand, sometimes just the general idea. But do they have parties? Yeah, they do. Vintage Tupperware swap parties. Wow. And if you know more about collecting Tupperware, I'd really like to know more as, as to like even just where I could find more comprehensive information. Write in antiquesfreakspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Some of the notable markings you might be looking for, in addition to the fact that if it's a stoneware or porcelain mold, you'll be looking for the big stoneware or porcelain markings. Don't have time to go through all of those. Check out some of our previous episodes for a general idea. It's a hook. Now we got you hooked. I don't know if any of our Karnacki episodes will be particularly enlightening, but it's worth a shot. Well, I'm I'm not here to hold your hand, so you're going to have to find out yourself which episodes are going to be helpful. (laughs) There's the hook. They're hooked. (laughs) I know notably, like, for high dollars, Shelly porcelain food molds are very valuable, like hundreds valuable. And the copper molds can be a little trickier. A lot of them aren't marked. And this becomes more true when we move down to tin. A lot of tin molds, of course, were just flat out, not nobody cared. Which means if you have a marked piece, that increases the value and the desirability quite a bit just by existing, by creating a provenance trail. Some marks you could look out for, Benham and Froud which is the orb and cross trademark, is one of the most desirable Victorian-era copper smiths that you could get a mold from. You also have Copeland Copper, Henry Loveridge Copper, Salvatore Ferenz Copper, a company called Trottier, and Creamer with a K. Hate that. Yeah, I was disturbed to find out actually went back quite a ways in the history of English kitchenware. Don't like that. Yeah, I don't like it. Not here for that. Yeah. 
Creamer was kind of like an old, tiny British crate and barrel, where it was like a, a largely a kitchen goods store with a very long history. Huh. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. So just know that if you ever see a Creamer branded one, and they're pretty valuable depending on what era they come from. I think Creamer might still be operating, but they don't make things of copper very much anymore, so, you know. Uh, moving forward in time, one of the only branded types of jello mold I could find was Miro Aluminum Co. of Wisconsin. As the name suggests, this is an American make. And formed aluminum is pretty hard to date and very rarely marked because aluminum is entirely, like, what is the word I am thinking of? When something is made for work. Practical? Utilitarian. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Aluminum is largely a utilitarian item. It's not meant to be kept and passed down from family to family, so provenance gets lost pretty quickly with that. Which is why, Miro Aluminum Co., your markings are valuable. You're valid. And this doesn't mean that an unmarked piece isn't old. It just means that it was made by a craftsperson without an established brand, or just brands that did not want to have these pieces branded for whatever reason. If it's made by a craftsperson without an established brand, is it technically folk art? I'm going to kill you. <laughs> So how's that? <laughs> Make your time. <laughs> All your loved ones. Oh, we do have fun. <laughs> it's artisanry, Ken. It's artisanry. God. Your number one thing. The easiest way to determine age is frustratingly to just kind of get a hang of what old copper looks like. The presence of verdigris is a great way to kind of roughly establish age and identify if the material is in fact copper. Verdigris takes a surprisingly long amount of time to develop, especially to cover the entirety of a piece. So a verdigreed piece of copper is either old or has been left out in the yard for a stunning amount of time. And unfortunately, those occur in 50-50 ratios, <laughs> so don't rely just on that. But it's a good start. Yeah, um, if you're not aware of what verdigris is, it is the oxidation that copper undergoes that turns it into a gentle seafoam green color and makes the texture go from smooth to pebbly. Iron is to rust as copper is to verdigris. It's also the reason why ancient copper dragons in Dungeons and Dragons get a green film over their eyes as they age. It's also why I like that. <laughs> <laughs> You can also check for other signs of age in general. Any sign that it was hammered by hand, which will look like multiple uneven hammer marks. The presence of a tin lining. The new copper colored pieces and some of the actual copper pieces that were just for decoration obviously don't have tin lining. And even on pieces where the tin lining has worn away, it'll still be obvious. Now when tin oxidizes, it mostly turns black. So that'll be pretty easy to spot, I think. You also want a fair amount of heaviness. The wall hanger gelatin molds are very, very, very light. They are usually colored aluminum. And even the copper colored tin still has a fair amount of heft. If you pick it up and it feels like a piece of food molding that you would use, that's a good sign. And as always, our old chestnut, the patina in general, does it look like it's been through a lot of use? For example, the pudding mold that I have has a significant amount of wear on half of it, which is where it was, I believe, dipped upside down in hot water to release. That kind of sign of use is a really good indicator that this was a real one, right? Yeah. God, I'm so excited about this pudding mold. I cannot stress that enough. <laughs> I'm going to make pudding in it. I'm going to get tin poisoning. Wait, no. Do you know? <laughs> a 
lot of tin and copper molds were also marked with whatever store was selling them. So that establishes sort of like a research point you can make where if you find this store, you can look it up and see how far back it goes, when it might be likely that they were making these molds. So that can be helpful. If you're extremely lucky, older, fancier ones might have the stamp marking of the household they were from. Oh. They would have these marked because um, if you were using them heavily, they would need to be retinned for use. And the tin smith or metal smith that they got sent to needed to know who to return that one to. Yes, that's how popular this was. I thought that was to keep the servants from stealing and selling it. Yeah, I don't know. I guess that was probably a bigger problem with silver, honestly. Fair point. You know what? Now that you say that, (laughs) silver is genuinely more valuable. (laughs) That's probably a part of it. When you say that out loud and I hear it in my ears, I do find that I concur with the assessment that (laughs) silver is the more valuable metal of the two. Well, you know, copper was valuable in the Victorian era, but it wasn't quite valuable the way we think of it now. Yeah, it it wasn't it wasn't quite 21st century copper prices just yet. Woo! Yeah. Obviously now copper outstrips silver on like a regular basis. So, actually that hasn't been true for a while, but it sounded punchy and it is occasionally true. Can we say it intermittently outstrips silver when it never did before? Correct. Thank you, Ken. Other kind of like unusual ones that still hold a lot of value, if you're looking at brown salt glaze stoneware, those were largely for like lower class households. And I found those going for like 50 through 90. So those can be really nice. And also a lot of people really like the brown salt glaze for their decor. So keep an eye on that. So reproductions are extremely common for jelly molds. And unfortunately, the more common they become, as with all reproductions, the harder it is to tell them from the originals. I find that weight is probably the most important factor to look at when you're determining if something is a reproduction. Weight and patina are my linchpins. If you're hunting for these specifically copper ones, keep on your phone an image of copper. Once you have something to compare it to, the wrong color for copper is much more apparent, such as copper-colored tins and aluminums. They never quite look like copper. And that's easy to miss if you're not looking at real copper. So consider that. Won't you? Thank you. Thank you. You also want to see a heavy lip specifically, because these were meant to be weight-bearing. And hanging rings, while those are extremely common in like decorative reproductions, hanging rings should be as heavy, if not heavier, than the body of the mold. A lot of them have dinky little hanging rings that are just extremely lightweight, and that's a bad sign. Again, obviously too clean, not any patina, big big red flag. And I find all of the fakes and repros that I found are just a safe assortment of like bland regular shapes, like unadorned rings and like that kind of like ribbed mold shape. The one that you would draw if you were playing Pictionary and had to draw a jello mold. I don't know that that would help anyone. It's a very abstract shape. <laughs> Non-elaborate shapes are the most reproduced, so if that's what you're encountering, I would be extra careful of those. And that's the jiggle on Jell-O. Thank you. <laughs> Our sources for today include jellomoldmistress.com. Whoa, wait, what? She's actually mostly recipes. Does she know? Has anyone told her? Oh, I went to the website and she knows. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Antiquetrader.com. Vintage gelatin molds. Highly collectible. Foodhistoryjottings.blogspot.com, The Jonah Mold, or Size Matters, LiveAuctioneers.com, Antique Jelly Molds, VintageFrenchCopper.com, there it is, HistoricFood.com, 
slash molds. Collectorsweekly.com, Kitchen Molds, and SeriousEats.com, History of Jello Salad. If you would like to suggest an episode topic or just say hello, you can email AntiquesFreaksPodcast at gmail.com or post in our Facebook group, Antiques Freaks Friends, or tag us on Tumblr, AntiquesFreaks.tumblr.com. If you liked us talking about nasty food and how not to eat it, feel free to scroll on down to wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave us a review. 10 out of 10, I love my jello molds and you by association. I like that one. I hope we get that one. We have an Etsy? Oh yeah, we have an Etsy. The end. And, um, (laughs) (laughs) that's that's it. (laughs) If you would like to purchase some vintage goods or some t-shirts and stickers with the podcast logo on them, you can hit up our Etsy at etsy.com slash shop slash antiquesfreaks. You have missed out on the latest clown, but fret not. I have another, slightly less horrible one, coming up soon. More clowns, more clowns. You don't even know how many clowns <laughs> I have. I also have non-clown items. If you want more podcasts to listen to, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash antiquesfreaks, where we are episode by episode, chapter by chapter, recounting the penny dreadful Varney the Vampire or the Feast of Blood. Special shout out to our current patrons for paying our hosting fees. And filling our hearts with love. So much love. And thank you in particular for listening. That's right. You. Au revoir.